you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 7. While you're turning there, uh, and we'll jump into it shortly, I should let you know that uh, there's always this disconnect sometimes between when I make my backside of the bullet and send it over to Mary. And so your notes, if you're a note taker, didn't fully get in that back section of your bulletin. Um, but if you're really observant, actually, the front of your bulletin has the answers already on it. So if you're a note taker and you want to go ahead and write this down, the whole idea is living intentionally like Jesus means avoiding a culture of con- condemnation and embracing a culture of correction. That's the entire phraseology. It's on the front of your bulletin and you can turn around and copy it to the back if you're so interested. But with that in mind, let me uh, read to you starting in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, still in his Sermon on the Mount, says, don't, uh, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite! First, take the beam out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give the body or don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. So a while back, Haley and I went to a, um, a dwarf wrestling event. My job as a pastor is to give you chances to practice what I preach. And this is a great chance to practice the do not judge, okay? So I start there, and I also add, add this to it. Um, while we were there, I learned quickly. There are two places I've been uh, where I've just learned, like, these are not my people. One was Trader Joe's, and uh, one was that event. So if you're judging me, just know I understand that's not... But it was fascinating, okay? It was very interesting. But I think the most interesting part to me... Was, was not the event in itself. The most interesting part to me was this particular story. And I don't remember the full details of it, but, but I'll never forget the idea. So I'll fill in a couple gaps and, and make it a little bit connected. But you'll pick up what I mean. Haley and I go, we, we get our seats, and the thing's like an hour delayed for some reason. I have no idea why. So we're just sitting there waiting. And these four people come and sit behind us. It's like these two couples. Never got a good look at them, never saw anything, but I could hear everything they were saying. And so they were talking at some point, and one of them said, it's just been so sad since we lost our pug. I was like, oh, that's, that's really sad. And so the other lady, that's, they're, they're talking, she says back, I'm so sorry, like, I know, I know you love pugs. And the lady's like, yeah, we had five, and now we only have four. This is really sad. This lady had five pugs, she, she lost one. And then she goes, you know, pugs... But Roscoe, I don't remember what she named it, but like Roscoe, he only lived to be four. But I mean, I guess, you know, pugs really on average only live to be about six years old. And I'm like, that's, that's not true. I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, and I like look it up and that's not at all how long pugs live. And then she, she starts having this conversation. And then she says something along the lines of, I just don't think I'll ever look at Dr. Pepper the same way again. Now, luckily, the lady that's talking to her asked the question that's on everyone's mind. Why can't you look at Dr. Pepper the same way? And this lady comes out and she says, that was Roscoe's favorite drink. We gave Roscoe Dr. Pepper every single day. He loved drinking. I'm like, this lady's killing pugs with Dr. Pepper. Like, it's just something that's happening. 
around me. And so full, full disclosure, uh, I absolutely judged that lady. I don't know what she looked like. I don't know. I didn't turn around, but I absolutely judged that lady. I made a judgment call. There's some lady out there killing pugs by giving them Dr. Pepper. And that's wrong in my book. I just, and if that's you and you're here, thank you for being here. Don't give Dr. Pepper to pugs. It's just not a, not a great idea. But interaction time. Was it right or me? Was it right or wrong of me? To draw that conclusion. Was it right or wrong of me to judge that lady? You don't have to raise your hand, but unless you, you want to. Was, was it right of me? Was it wrong of me? Now, for those of you that might say wrong of me, just, just a quick little question in response to that. I hear you. I understand. But what about you judging me right now? You're just judging me for judging that lady, and that's not okay for me, then it's not okay for you telling me that I'm wrong. And welcome to the complexity of this issue we call judging. It seems like it's this simple thing that's like, yeah, don't judge, and we write it off and we move on and march away like everything's going to be fine. But behind that perception is this sea of complexity. Because the process of judgment by nature, creates this paradoxical cascade that can leave walls of broken relationships and distrust and all of these in response. Haley and I have been taking birth classes recently because I'm going to be a pro at this and not pass out, I say confidently. (laughs) And so part of this birthing class is they talk about what's called the cascade of interventions, which is when you go in and they think, hey, we probably need to go ahead and induce labor. And then since they induced labor, that changed some hormone things. And because it did that, it, well, now we need to do it this way. And now that we've changed this and you're locked to a bed, we need to do this. And it's just once you commit to doing one thing, the idea is it cascades all the way down that you weren't able to control at that point. It's just a part of birthing classes if you've never taken that apparently I think that's kind of how judgment works you start this process of judgment and then in response someone judges you for judging them and then you write your script about them and you just start going down in this complex cycle like here's an example and I'm not trying to give any sort of commentary in this it's just an easy thing to point out here at XYZ University we welcome students of any belief from any background we are a judgment-free zone Except bigots. We don't want those people in here. Get, get out. It's a little bit ironic. I'm not making a commentary about whether. I'm just saying we're a judgment-free zone except for people that judge. We don't want them here. Or, or you get the guy with this cardboard sign on, on a thing and it just says, all insert your choice of sin here will burn in the lake of fire. And he marches through campus or through the crowded street yelling. And I look at that and it frustrates me because I'm like, how can that guy be so brash and judgmental? I can't believe people are like that in this world. But in the process of him judging others, I begin to judge him. Here's my point in this judgment is not some problem with those people over there that we're protected from in our little bubble of whatever. It's a complex problem that infects everyone And often it will seek to put dividers in relationships and walls in between people. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There are absolutely times that I'm going to look at my son and he's going to say, Dad, I want to go to that friend's house. And I'm going to say, no, we're not going because I'm making a judgment call to protect my son. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a complicated thing. There's a lot more that goes into this process than often what we realize 
Because while I look at the guy with the megaphone and I say, that guy's being hateful, what I end up doing is inevitably imagining that Jesus and I are on the same side of this dividing line and I'm having a little side conversation with Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, can you believe that guy? I mean, imagine that amount of hate in someone's heart. And Jesus is standing next to me saying, I know, I know people like that, Philip. And it's always me versus them. It's always me and Jesus. We're on the right side. And everyone over here, they're on the wrong side. But that's exactly how that guy sees himself in Jesus. That it's actually he and Jesus over here and saying, man, these people are being destroyed by sin. And it's our job to call them out. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know we need to. Do you get the complexity of this? How do we deal with it? So that's exactly what Jesus is dealing with right here in Matthew chapter seven, because it is the solution. Hey, let's just stop judging everybody altogether, no matter what. Well, I don't think so, because I think any good relationship is going to require good judgment. It's going to require being able to determine what's good and what's bad and how do we grow this thing rightly. And in Jesus's kingdom, one of the foundational principles of following Jesus is the necessity of following Jesus in relationship with others. You actually can't really follow Jesus the way he intended by yourself. You got to have someone next to you. You got to have someone that can respond and interact with you. So therefore, if we need relationships to follow Jesus, uh, but we're all prone to this tendency of a perpetuating cascade of judgment, we're all prone to this tendency to take the people we disagree with, that we dislike or whatever, and we reduce them down to an action or a behavior or an appearance, and we deny them the dignity of their, uh, the dignity of an image bearer. Well, over and over again, Jesus has emphasized, how do we have good relationship? So if judgment's not doing that, but it's also not avoiding judgment altogether, what is the purpose of good, right judgment? Because over and over again in this sermon, Jesus emphasizes that his followers always find ways to dignify and love one another and to dignify and love the world around them. But that stands in direct opposition to what our sin wants to do. As our sin draws us into more of me, less of them. I can't believe they'd say that. I, I always knew that person was a whatever bad word you want to insert there. So how do we deal with that? Now, there's a lot to unpack in chapter 7 or chapter 7, 1 through 6. And I, I can't get into all of it, I don't think. But when Jesus and the New Testament authors talk to this or speak to this concept of judgment, there's always some assumed boundaries or some implied boundaries by which they discuss this. Meaning this process of judgment that we're going to dive deeper into in a few moments, it has boundary lines. There's actually a way and a place in which you should do it and a way and place in which you should not do it. And namely, I think the best way to describe it is it's to be held within the clear standards of confessing believers, not forced upon those who don't understand or don't believe. And the best way we can do this is actually read it backwards and start in verse six. So in verse six, we, we get this little short, I think it's a parable where Jesus says, don't give what's holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they'll trample them underfoot and tear you to pieces. I start here for a few reasons. One, it's really oddly placed. If you're just reading through the Sermon on the Mount and you get to that, your, your first reaction is usually, what? 
Jesus, I, I'm, I lost you there. In fact, there's even a lot of disagreement on whether or not this is supposed to be a part of the same section. If you read the ESV, it actually separates it out into a different paragraph. The Christian Standard Bible includes it all in together. And depending on where you put it is going to influence how you interpret it. And there's like eight different possible interpretations. Some of them, I think, are valuable. Things like, you know, this is about disciples treasuring and guarding the message of the kingdom as sacred and valuable. I've read other commentaries that I think are less valuable. I read one that tried to actually connect the idea of trampled pearls to salt having lost its saltiness in Matthew chapter 5. And I think that's just a bridge that doesn't really exist there. That's not what Matthew's getting at. So what is the purpose behind this little sentence at the end of this section on judgment? So, again, eight different kind of interpretations. So I'm going to give you the one I think is right. I could be wrong, but I, but I think this is the most likely. And I need to start by saying this. I think this is a parable, not an allegory. So, so an allegory is when every character or everything in the story has some symbolic meaning behind it. So the pigs represent this. The dogs represent this. The pearls represent this. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Uh, if Jesus is being allegorical here, then the only logical conclusion is to say that he is referring to unbelievers as pigs and dogs, uh, which sounds really hateful, Jesus. So, so I don't think that's his purpose in that. I think it's just a parable. So a parable, as opposed to an allegory, is that a parable has one single point it wants you to pick up. Every little detail doesn't make a big difference. It's just one single theme that Jesus is trying to communicate to you here. It's a story with a central point, namely in this case, that if a person has something of great value that they want to share with other people, and if they try to show that thing of value to someone who doesn't see it as valuable, it usually caves in on itself. It's a lot like thinking pigs or dogs would ever be impressed with your pearls. In Sunday school, we were talking about this this morning, and I thought it made a good illustration, so... I asked one of the college students about, like, what, what thing did you really value? He's like, I valued cars. And, like, his favorite car was a Camaro. So, like, what if, you know, you got a Camaro and, like, dude, I can't wait to show this pig my Camaro. It's going to love it. It's going to be the fastest it's ever again. It's going to have a great time. You know, is your pig going to fall in love with that Camaro? Or is your pig going to make a mess in the back seat? That's what Jesus is getting at. You can take these things that we hold valuable as believers in Jesus and go and try to show them to someone that doesn't consider them valuable. And it might actually have the opposite effect of what you want. See, it's a good desire, but it's a it's a dangerous desire. Because what happens when you turn on that song you really like in the car and the person in the back seat goes, what is this trash? Kind of hurts your feelings a little bit, kind of ruins the mood. So what does all of this have to do with, with judging? And the best I can make of it is this. If you expect the world outside of Jesus to value the things of Jesus, you very well might instead find disconnect and conflict you weren't prepared for. Meaning, there's a need for wisdom and prayer and consideration when addressing points of value with others that may not hold those same points. Now, that being said... What about people who claim to follow Jesus? And this is where I think the Bible draws the concrete boundary lines. 1 Corinthians 5 says it this way. I just wanted to quickly read it to you because I think it makes it pretty clear. Chapter 5, verse 9. 
I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is immoral or greedy. An idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such persons. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? See, I think... Hear me out here. If your tendency is to look at people out there who have no knowledge or understanding of Jesus, they have no knowledge or understanding of his ways, his love, and then you expect them to act according to his ways, it's like trying to show a pig how pretty pearls are. They don't care. It doesn't change anything. So I don't think that's what Jesus or Paul is getting at when they're talking about this idea of what are the right boundaries of judgment. Instead, they're getting at how do you uphold this standard within the proper boundary lines? How do you uphold this standard within Jesus communities? And with that in mind, let's hit verse one. So within this community, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Now, right off the bat, uh, it's using the word judge and it's a good translation. I don't love it just because and it's not even the Greek word. The Greek word is the word krino. And it's not even that I think the Greek word krino doesn't equal judge. It's that our English word judge has such a crazy range of meaning. I mean, there is so many different things it can mean. In, in the Greek, the most basic use of the word krino, um, the first kind of use we really see of it is actually in uh, the Iliad, in Homer's writings. And he talks about separating chaff from grain. So you're, you're krinoing. That's not really good Greek at all. But my Greek professor would be very mad at that. But you're you're separating out and you're deciding what do you want to keep and what do you want to throw away. So I want to keep the grain and I want to throw away the chaff. That's the action of crino to decide on something. And that's what we mean when we use the word judge in a lot of ways. So we, we look at two or more options and we decide on which is the best option. So chocolate people or vanilla people? Chocolate? Vanilla. Yeah, vanilla, you're right. Congratulations. You got the right answer. You didn't know that, but you're you're right on that. Yeah, you you look at the two flavors and you decide which one is your favorite based on how it tastes. Now, Now, here's the thing that's challenging. For you chocolate people out there, I could give you all these statistics on why I think vanilla is better. And it doesn't change the reality because the way you've experienced chocolate is better than the way you've experienced vanilla. This is the complexity of judgment. So it's okay within myself to make some judgment calls to to decide which is better and which is not as good. But what is Jesus getting at when he's using this phrase, judge? When he says, don't judge, does that mean you just throw out your moral compass altogether and don't bother with critical thinking or ethical decision-making? No, that's ridiculous. Jesus, over and over in his Sermon on the Mount, has called you back to a state of ethical thinking and and critical decision-making. He wants you to go through this process. In fact, if you go down and read verse 15, Jesus is going to say, Be on your guard against false prophets who have come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly are ravaging wolves. And he says this, You'll recognize them by their fruits. That sounds like judging people to me. That Jesus is saying, go look at the fruits people produce and try to determine whether or not they're actually safe or they're a false prophet. In chapter five, leading up to this, he's had all of these clear moral instructions about being salt and light, avoiding anger and lust, rightly prioritizing money and possessions. So if don't judge means never give a clear method as to right and wrong, then Jesus has supremely contradicted himself. 
I mean, in verse 5, he calls them hypocrites. It's a little judgmental, Jesus. You see, Jesus' command here is not don't judge, period. His command is don't judge in a way that isn't within the boundary according to a consistent standard. Verse 2, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure. Jesus is saying there is some standard that is an acceptable means for judgment. Just understand the standard by which you push out judgment is the same standard by which judgment comes back to you. It's a a vice versa relationship because we all assess other people's actions and then we decide or determine the weight of those actions. And is that a safe person to be around? Should I let my kids be around that person? Should I not let my kids be around that person? Can I go to that church? Can I not go to that church? Can I trust that pastor? Can I not trust that pastor? Can I? All of these are judgment calls that we make on a day to day basis. Jesus is saying there's a way to do it. That's fair. In fact, it's so fair that if you were to talk to that person and they turned around and they asked the question right back to you, you would say, yeah, that's fair. Hey, lady, probably shouldn't give Dr. Pepper to your dog. Well, do you give Dr. Pepper to your dog? No, I don't. Actually, it's a fair question. Right. Like, yeah, let's let's uphold the same standard here. But if there's a right way to do it, there's also a a wrong way to do it. There are other ways that if it was to be turned back around, we would say, what? That's not what I meant. You're making assumptions. You're you're filling in gaps. You're assuming my motives. Ways that allow you to take an action that someone did and override their identity with it to reduce them down to their scarlet letter. That's the book Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote like over 100 years ago. Right. This person is nothing more than the crime they committed. They're nothing more than the sin that weighs on them. And so what do we do? What's the right way to measure this? And in Jesus's mind, if you're going to do it correctly, it always starts with yourself. It always starts with yourself. How can you say verse four to your brother? Let me take the splinter out of your eye. That word splinter may be a little bit too heavy handed. It makes sense. But the Greek is just like a speck. Like it's just like a little thing that probably doesn't make that much of a difference other than being irritating. So. How do you look at someone and say, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. You got to understand Jesus, Jesus is being funny. We don't always pick up because it's become such a normal phrase, like remove the log in your eye before you. But when you look back at this, Jesus is being humorous. It's a point of ridiculousness. And this is Jesus has done this over and over again through the Sermon on the Mount. He'll say something ridiculous, kind of get a chuckle out of the crowd. And then as they're laughing, he kind of goes in for the gut punch. So in in Matthew chapter five, whoever calls his brother or sister empty headed, they should go to the Sanhedrin and have them sorted out. Whoever says uh, idiot to their brother or sister are subject to the courts. And that's funny because Jesus, the Sanhedrin doesn't deal with silly little things like insults. They tackle big, complex cases like it's not not things like that. So you kind of laugh it off. And then Jesus comes in with the and whoever says you fool is subject to hellfire. Same same premise here. How on earth could a guy with a plank, a log, a, a telephone pole sticking out of his skull even begin to process the action of examining a piece of dust in another's eye? There's a good chance I'm accidentally going to knock someone out in that process. That's the illustration down here. See, this isn't a commentary on whether or not that person has something in their eye that's concerning. It's a commentary that before you ever think about addressing that, Jesus expects you to have done a whole bunch of work 
so that the encounter becomes healing and helpful rather than harmful and counterproductive. This is how, in Jesus' mind, you prevent the perpetual cascade of judgment. Or I judge you, and because I judge you, you judge me, and because you judge me, I judge you. No, I come in with a humble heart. You come in with a humble heart and say, having examined this standard in my own life first, I see something concerning in yours. This is what Jesus is getting at. When it comes to the complexity of judging and whether you should or shouldn't address a particular issue, Jesus expects your very first assumption to be, actually, I might be the problem. I might have my own selfishness and my own greed, and all of that might actually be affecting my own vision. So I need to deal with that before I ever deal with them. Because it's really easy for us to notice the poor decisions and actions that other people make. It's way harder to know the ones of my own. Because I know my motivations. I know my heart was in the right place. I know what I intended. I know that any decision I made can be justified based off of the own ideas that I have swirling around in my own mind. But when that person makes that decision, it's wrong. It's outright wrong. There's nothing behind it other than just to write them off entirely. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, said this, when I judge, I'm blind to my own evil and to the grace granted the other person. So if I actually start with a clear heart posture of self-examination and humility, only then can I consider confronting someone else's action. And to be honest, I don't think the church has done a great job of this. In 2006, there was a Barna study, and I know 2006 is like a long time ago now, but... Don't you hate saying that? That feels wrong to say. But 2006 was a long time ago. In this Barna study, they intentionally looked at people that were not identifying Christians. They were identified non-believers is what they identified as. And then they gave them a list of attributes of words to pick from and and have positive, negative connotations. And they said, hey, pick three that you think are most representative of Christians. And so as these results came in, it's still this kind of landmark study in it. Number one. 87% of people responded with the word judgmental. It's like almost 90% of people wrote Christians are judgmental. That was number one. Number two, 85% said hypocritical. That the two leading characteristics of the modern church is judgmental and hypocritical. Might it be that we've taken Jesus's standards and we've pushed them into a broken world without first letting them transform us? That we're running out into a world, jousting with beams of wood stuck in our eyes, harming people in the process. See, for Jesus, the starting point is always first removing the plank. Verse 5. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So the question is, how do we do that? How, How do we remove the beam of wood in our own eye? Well, I have to start by understanding it's not me and Jesus on one side of the line whispering about the people over on that side of the line. Instead, it's that I know that I am totally separated from Jesus. If Jesus is on one side of the line, I am not with him. Because I'm just as broken. I am actually one of the people in desperate need of grace. And the only place I can find that is actually from Jesus You know, there's a verse that Jesus gives, a little saying he gives in his talk with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We we quote 3.16, which is great. 3.17, Jesus builds off of that and he says, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. It's a really interesting thing because do you know what that word condemn is in the Greek? It's the word krino. 
It's the same word Matthew uses here for do not judge. You could translate that Jesus saying, I did not come into the world to judge the world. Jesus, the one person who had every right to step in and was qualified to judge and condemn on a standard that none of us could meet is the only one that had never been misled by sin because he never sinned. But instead, he comes to bring reconciliation. And here's the reality. Reconciliation demands correction, not condemnation. Say that again, because I think it's important. Reconciliation demands correction, not condemnation. And this is what Jesus offers us at the gospel. That at the life and death of Jesus, anyone who would put their faith in him might be reconciled back to right relationship with God. And they're no longer condemned into their sin, but they're corrected into the way of Jesus. And that correction takes time and challenge and process. See, the difference between those two words, correction and condemnation, I think is where this whole thing hinges. And this is what allows us to rightly function as a Jesus community. That intentionally living like Jesus means avoiding condemnation and embracing correction. I had James 4 in here. I'll just read it really quickly. But in James 4, James talks about the same thing in verse 11. He he says this. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. And if you judge the law, are you not a doer of the law, but a judge? See, there's only one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbors? See, it's this idea that if we take judgment the wrong way, we end up in a system of condemnation. Where we look at someone's actions, we write them off, we side with God and we sign God's name to it on his little certificate and say, that person's this person. And we totally miss what God wants for their life and correcting them and restoring them. And if the gospel's both about me experiencing God's grace and then helping others to experience God's grace, then it's gonna demand the right type of judgment, a judgment that will demand correction. See, here's the deal. Every stable system demands correction. Every system demands correction, be it a family or a church or a community or a state or a nation. It demands some consistent system of correction. Have you ever been at the Thanksgiving where there's like eight kids under six years old? Someone needs to do some correcting or you're going to have mashed potatoes on the wall and tears on the floor. We, we need some form of. And if you've never done that, might I invite you to serve in our kids ministry? We can give you great practice. It's wonderful. And it's serious. It is. But good systems need correction. Even the best children need correction. We have to have that to be a healthy, functioning church. Correction is a normal part of community. But a good view of correction always starts with receiving before giving. But I actually look internally. I allow people to correct me. Now, I'm not saying every person in this room has the right to walk up to you and to tell you what they think about the dog breed you picked. Although, if you're killing them with Dr. Pepper, stop. But you should have some people within this room, within a small group of people that love Jesus, that have permission to challenge you, to correct you. And you can challenge and correct them, both under the precepts of removing logs before pursuing correction. But that being said... Who in your life 
has permission to point out the speck in your eye. If you don't have anybody, you need to try to find somebody. Because your relationship to Jesus can't grow without it. When Haley and I were, were dating, I'll end with this story. When Haley and I were dating, uh, as a young, kind of, kind of preacher boy, Bible school, college kids, uh, I was very opinionated. I don't know if that was normal, but I, I knew what was right and what was wrong, and anything that disagreed with me was dumb, and I was the smart one. And that went with everything that was theology, all the way to things like uh, plates with flowers on it are girly, and I don't want plates with flowers on it. And so we had this ongoing battle where Haley would say something or do something, and I'd be like, I don't like that. Um, and it happened on a lot of different things. I don't like plates with flowers on them. I don't want a comforter with flowers on it. I don't want this type of plate, even to the point of like, I don't like the color lipstick you're wearing. I don't like that headband that you're wearing today. Yeah, this, this is young. Don't judge me. This is practice, okay? <laughs> and I'll never forget my senior year of college. I'm at a friend's apartment, and I get a call from Haley's dad. It's just a casual conversation. I'm talking to him, and, and he all of a sudden goes, hey, just a quick question. Do you ever think Haley looks ugly? I'm like, no, never. I think like, she's beautiful. I want to marry her. That's good. Me too. I'm curious. Do you not trust her to take care of herself? Put on headbands that she thinks are pretty and still always look pretty? That's a really good point, Rick. And by the way, while I'm thinking about it, Philip, uh, you ever had steak off a plate that made the steak taste bad? Flowers on a plate make, make food taste bad to you? No, not really. Yeah, me either. And I remember at that point, just like tears coming to my eyes, and there was this realization moment that I hadn't treated my, my fiance, my coming wife, the way I should as a man of God and as a husband. And what I needed in that time was for someone to correct me undeniably. Now, had he called me, and, and I don't know, just hypothetically, it would never be the case with him, but had he called me and had, you know, seven failed marriages in his past and be like, you better stop treating my daughter that way or I'm going to come out to Tennessee and probably wouldn't have gone over very well. But I'll never forget that conversation. And to this day, Haley doesn't get flowers on the plates. I'm very grateful for that. But even if she did, it would be fine. And what I've learned is my life is way better and I am a much better husband because Rick Britton was willing to call me and challenge me on something. We need that. We need people, not to be rude or oppressive or angry, but people to come to us and say, hey, that thing that you said, that pattern within your life, I'm not sure that's what you're going for. Do you, do you think Haley would ever let herself not look pretty? Of course not. That's what we need from one another. And it starts with this understanding that Jesus is the one that first removes the plank. That he forgives us and sets us free. And then he calls us to a standard. And if you believe that, then you're called to that standard. And I'm called to that standard. And it's not me versus you. It's us together trying to live that standard out. That's the boundaries by which Jesus comes in and says, if you're going to judge, it has to be in there. If you're not going to judge that way, if your judgment is ever the process of writing someone off in condemnation, then stop. Don't do it that way. You will ruin this community. But if you have someone in your French group, someone that you can trust, might I challenge you just to lean into that person? To set up times to reflect and ask, what would God want me to look like? 
Because what if First Baptist becomes this church that's that type of community? Well, what if we're the type of church that demands a lot more love and a lot more patience and a lot more investment? Because I think that's how God loves us and is patient with us and has invested in us. So let's return the favor. This is your time to maybe reflect. Maybe you need to go to someone and say, hey, I need that in my life. Would you be willing to help me? Maybe you just need to pray, God, I got some things that I need to sort out of myself before I ever deal with those people. But this is your chance to reflect. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you've never known what it's like to be set free from your sin. You can come know that right here this morning. This is the life Jesus has come to offer us. Father God, we thank you for what you've done and how you love us. And God, I pray that you make this church a church of correction. We all need it. There's not a single person in here that doesn't struggle with things in our lives. We need people to lean into us and to help us see. But God, as we're pursuing you and pursuing a higher standard of living by your word, let us never be a church of condemnation. Let us never be the church that writes people off as sinners and, and never gives them the chance to be reconciled. God, we want to be like Jesus. So help us avoid the culture of condemnation and embrace the culture of correction. It's in Jesus' name we pray.